This episode is brought to you by Levitt Pavilion. This summer, check out one of my favorite outdoor concert venues in Denver, Levitt Pavilion. May through October, Levitt is offering ticketed and totally free all-ages concerts. I feel like we just go to anything that's free because it's like the kids can be at the show and it's people aren't weird about it and you can like bring a picnic. It's awesome. Some of the free shows this season include Iskali, Melvin Seals, War and Treaty, Sunny War, Chali Tuna, and more. To RSVP for free shows and buy tickets, plus see the full concert schedule, go to levittdenver.org. That's levittdenver.org. Today on CityCast Denver, Colorado Democrats are trying to tackle gun reform yet again with a big package of bills. And Denverites are rightfully asking if a toxic train derailment like the one in Ohio could happen here. Plus, we're talking wage transparency laws and the dream of pollinator gardens being part of developers' future plans. I'm breaking down all the local stories that matter with my producer, Erin O'Toole. Plus, we have a cute and furry update from the Denver Zoo. Today is Tuesday, February 28th, 2023. I'm Bree Davies, and here's what Denver's talking about. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Bree. So it's Tuesday. We're looking at some of the stories that caught our eye in recent days. Uh, this sucks, I'll tell you. We're talking about guns again. It seems like it's a topic that always comes up. Yeah. I mean, this this was something we launched our show off of was the mass shooting at uh, King Supers in Boulder two years ago. Right. Pushed us to start our show even earlier. And obviously, we're still talking about it. We're talking about it every day. And in particular, I think it's come to people's minds because of obviously the most recent um, Club Q shooting. That's right. But we're not the only ones talking about it. Lawmakers at the state capitol are talking about it. Yes. And it's interesting with this Democratic uh, controlled legislature. Um, they're really using this moment, I think, to push forth some what seems like pretty radical ideas around gun control. Yeah. I, in fact, one of the representatives called this a golden moment for Democrats to talk about this issue. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I think that was Meg, Representative Meg Froelich said that. Yeah, yep. And I, I agree with her. I think it's weird that it isn't every time that we talk about guns. It's not that golden moment. But I think she's talking about also just sort of the makeup of the legislature and where we are here in Colorado. Right. So what are lawmakers talking about? I mean, what's in these bills? Sure. So um, last week, they unveiled a package of four bills that would um, do a couple of things. One would be raise the age limit uh, to purchase a gun from 18 to 21. Uh, what I learned, which was interesting, is 18 is the federal law. Okay. Colorado actually doesn't have its own. So we would be implementing a Colorado-specific law to bump that age up to 21. Okay. Obviously, I, I think this is in uh, in an effort to do something to curb gun violence among young people. Obviously, gun rights advocates really don't like it. Right. But we'll we'll get to that a little <laughs> bit later. Right. Um and then the next the next part was a create a 3-day waiting period between buying and possessing a weapon. And I looked into this and lawmakers are are pushing for this because the hope is that especially in in incidences of of suicide or if someone's in a heightened state the hope is that giving them the, this cooling off time might change the impact of what buying that gun could mean. And then the next one is really interesting because it touches on something that happened with Club Q as well as I think the 
the Broadway slash Lakewood shooting, mm. which is expanding the red flag law or the extreme risk protection order is what it's known um, and or what it's known as. And it would expand who could utilize this law. Right now, it's just uh, police officers, mm-hmm. law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I would say law enforcement as a broader term and family members. If someone is concerned about somebody's safety and they are in possession of a weapon, this would... Um, mean that someone in law enforcement or a family member could petition the court to bar them from possessing a firearm if it's determined that they are a risk to themselves or others. And what this expansion of the red flag law would do would include health care providers and educators. Mm -hmm. They would have to have contact with the person within six months. So you can't just say, I know this person is known to be dangerous. It has to be someone that you've been working with directly in the last six months. And it would also um, expand it to district attorneys. So it's just creating more avenues for folks to call attention to somebody that they think is a threat to themselves or others. Right. And some have said this might have made a difference with the Club Q shooting. Is that right? Right. So there was a situation where there is documented, I think it was a Denver Gazette piece. I'll have to look. Someone did a deeper investigation. Mm -hmm. There was documented proof that he was, there was concern that he could commit a mass shooting. And his family declined to utilize the red flag law and law enforcement did not either. Mm. Um, I think also Representative Tom Sullivan, who is one of the main um, supporters of these bills, he's the he's the representative who ran for office because his son Alex was killed uh, in the Aurora Theater shooting. Right. He was saying, in particular with the Aurora Theater shooting, he was saying that gentleman had a therapist who knew what was going on, but that therapist didn't have any recourse or way to warn folks. And so... In a situation like that, the red flag law could have been used. So the idea is to just make it bigger. Who can who can alert law enforcement and the courts that this person might be in danger? Right. Um, and then finally, the last component here is there's a bill that would make it easier to sue a gun manufacturer for liability in a shooting. Right now in Colorado, the laws are pretty strict, and it kind of keeps the culpability away from gun manufacturers. So this law would would make it easier, which sounds, it sounded weird to me at first, mm-hmm. but then I understood there was there was a family who lost someone in a mass shooting here in Colorado who had sued a gun manufacturer and lost, and that also cost them $200,000 in lawyer's fees after losing their family member to gun violence. So the idea is to put some culpability towards the folks that are making these guns that are getting out into our communities. Right. So also, I think it's important to note that they're also still currently working on legislation that would be around a proposed assault weapons ban, as well as further regulations on ghost guns. And ghost guns are guns that can be bought online, unassembled, don't have a serial number, bypass gun purchasing laws, don't have a way to trace them. Um, But this is something that the legislature is still working on. Well, there's definitely a push and pull here between people who want stricter gun laws and there are organizations who do not want stricter gun laws. And that I I have to say, Erin, that was the thing that really struck me in reading about this legislation was this really grim juxtaposition between those fighting for stricter gun laws and then the lobbyists who are essentially fighting for guns. Um, I'm thinking about Representative Tom Sullivan again. Um, He carries around a picture of his son, Alex. Uh, all the time. He he talks about this experience of losing his son to gun violence every week in his work. And then on the other side of it, there was this quote um, from the Post from Taylor Rhodes from the Rocky Mountain Gun Owners Group, mm-hmm. who said that he would turn the House floor into a, quote, circus over this legislation. Hmm. 
So it just feels like there's two different things happening here, like people that want to prevent deaths and people that want to give rights to guns. I don't want to oversimplify it, but it just felt it's just a strange place to be. I I don't I don't envy lawmakers right now. I can't imagine having to face, you know, presenting a really humanitarian issue with some really callous response. Yes, it does feel that way. And I think I remember reading that Representative Sullivan has referred to the, you know, prevalence of gun violence as a, a public health crisis. Yeah. And what I appreciate about his comments, and this isn't just his thoughts, it's it's a wider conversation, is he knows mass shootings are what catch attention, right? That's mm-hmm. when we see the effects of gun violence on a larger scale. But he wants us to remember that this happens every day. But anyway, we'll be continuing to watch this. Obviously, we will. We've talked to Representative Sullivan. We'll drop a link to that conversation in the show notes. He's always been very honest and open about his experience as a legislator. Um, but yeah, we're we're continuing to talk about the gun issue in Colorado for sure. Yeah. Um, but I want to move on to a story that you're watching because this has like, na- this is a national story that went hyper local for a lot of places, including Colorado. Yeah, definitely. Um, now this happened in my home state of Ohio. Um, I'm I don't I didn't live close to East Palestine where the train derailment disaster happened recently. Um, but just because it happened hundreds of miles away doesn't mean people here aren't thinking about, could that happen here? And the answer is it could happen here because, you know, Denver and Colorado crisscrossed by a ton of rail lines. It's how we came to be. I mean, that's that's how Denver became a city was that we had rail lines. And so it's naturally a story that hits all of us close to home is what happens when something like this massive toxic spill from a train. I mean, I think about the trains that run right through the center of town. Mm-hmm. I mean, they run all even in obviously in rural areas, you're close to to train tracks as well. Right. Um, and a lot of people are asking, should we is this cause for concern for us in Colorado, too? Yeah. And it's worth noting that it has happened before, perhaps nothing quite as serious as what happened in East Palestine. Uh, a year ago, a few BNSF train cars derailed into the South Platte River. Oh, um, that's right. Yeah. Uh, no casualties were reported. They closed a portion of the trail for a little while. But, you know, it could have been much worse. Um, in 1995, a rail car leaked hydrochloric and muriatic acid into the air. That happened in the community of Swansea. God, GES cannot get a break. I know. Um, You know, there was a settlement from that, but I mean, it just sounded really bad. So the number of train cars that are carrying hazardous materials is expected to go up significantly in the next few years. This is partly due to there's a proposed rail line that's going to carry oil from Utah through Colorado to its final destination. It's concerning to read that the number of these rail cars carrying hazmat materials could jump from I think I was reading from about 4,000 in a year to 53,000. And that's if this oil-carrying train line would get approved, which seems likely. I don't know. But the other concern is that development happens a lot near rail lines. And this is also on the rise. Obviously, people want neighborhoods that are centered around transit options. I love to take the light rail. I love it. A lot of the light rail shares lines with freight rail. Oh, so it's running through the same parts of our communities where we want to be close to that transit. Exactly. So one of the people concerned is 
at-large uh, city councilwoman Debbie Ortega. She has been also, trying. Also mayoral candidate. She has been trying to assess just how vulnerable Denver might be. She proposed some measures last fall to address some concerns, and then um, officials were coming out with a, a safety assessment. So they kind of pushed that, they tabled that legislation for the time being. But what she's proposing is to regulate local development just a bit, meaning if you want to build something that's near a, a freight rail line, you need to apply for permits and show that you understand the dangers and that you have a plan in place in case something happens. Also on her um, proposal list is to allocate money for safety measures and create safety plans. Um, She got some pushback on this in the fall. So I think we'll have to see how this goes. Yeah, I I could see the minds changing a little bit now that we have this direct experience in our the forefront of our minds of what can happen. But I also see where folks skepticism is like, it's also on the rail lines. Like Mm -hmm. we can't just put it on the fact that, you know, I mean, we, like you said, you use light rail, we want to be near rail lines, but how do we make it as safe as possible? I don't know if restricting developments necessarily the idea, but it sounds like it's a balance of both of being safe on both sides. Exactly. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Wine Board. Because the wine community here is like surprisingly robust. I mean, think about Bigsby's Folly and Infinite Monkey Theorem here in Denver alone. And there are urban wineries all across the Front Range. Then there's the Western Slope, Peonia, I mean, Palisade, hello, Palisade Wine, are you kidding me? It didn't used to really be a thing, but from what I hear, it's very much a thing now. There are more than 165 wineries across Colorado to explore, and they produce all sorts of wine that reflect our unique culture and climate. So finding a label that you're going to love is easy, no matter where your adventure takes you. Discover it for yourself and support local winemakers at coloradowine.com. That's coloradowine.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So Brie, you've been following jobs and wages, and in particular, this idea of wage transparency. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I want to give a shout out to Tamara Chung at the Colorado Sun, who's like on the jobs and economy beat. If you want to know exactly what's going on in Colorado's economy specifically, she is the person to follow. She's been doing great reporting on this. Um, So recently, she reported that Colorado has the highest rate of wage transparency in the nation. Um, 61% of our listings for Colorado jobs include pay rates, um, which is huge. Also, it's interesting that it's not 100% because we are now required, companies are now required by law um, in Colorado to disclose wage rates in all job postings, whether they're hourly rates or salary rates. Yeah, what's with that 39%? (laughs) Well, it's interesting. According to, so how the, first of all, let's start about where where the data comes from. So first of all, two years ago, the Colorado Equal Pay for Equal Work Law went into effect, which requires this, uh, all job postings have to have salary and wages included. 
the data that she's pulling from was collected by an Aspen tech firm that combs like more than 6 million job listings across the country. And when she asked, like, how are we only at 61%? um, Some companies aren't complying. Mm -hmm. So there's that. But then um, part of it is like, you know, incomplete or misinterpreted data. There's always going to be an error in the data. So I would take from that that we're just going to continue to see this rise, right? We'll see the the wage transparency, um, the percentage rise. So I, I, again, I have looked at job listings for friends who sent them to me to be like, hey, do you know anything about this? And they don't have the wage listed. So I know from personal experience, that's that's very true. Yeah. And I know this law was passed in an attempt to obviously be more transparent, but the the goal is to make things equal for women and for underrepresented groups. Is that right? Yeah. So if you think about it, I mean, Erin, you know, you're Gen X. I'm a Gen X millennial cusper. It's a pretty new phenomenon for us to be talking publicly about what we make, oh, right? Yeah. That was not done, you know, when no. I first started working. Like, you don't talk about Three things: you don't politics, ask religion, <laughs> yeah, and, and wait, and, and what you what you make, right? And so I think um, what that also did was keep folks out of the knowledge of what the workforce was really valuing. And so there's, and this has been proven over and over again, where like a, a white man may make more than a woman, and uh, you know a white woman make more may make more than a person of color. And this is this was an attempt to sort of level that playing field as best as it possibly could be done by just showing folks, oh, okay, maybe I can actually kind of see what my colleague is making if a job listing for a similar job comes up, and it, whether they're telling me that specific wage or not, I can see from the job listing that it, you know, what they're making. So I, I, I love that. I think it's a very um, logical solution to something that we've been told is sort of in the dark that we're not supposed to know for a really long time. Yeah, absolutely. Any concerns with it? I, I think I remember reading there were some worries about it. Yeah. So one concern was that this law could keep some out-of-state companies from allowing Coloradans to apply for remote jobs, right? So you could be applying for a job in California and they don't want to disclose the salary because they don't disclose it in other states, but Colorado requires it. So they may just not, you know, a, a job like it's excludes Colorado applicants. Um, but as as far as things are going, um, it hasn't shown to really be an issue. Like it's it's not impacting the the job market at all, as far as they can tell. Right. I think as long as folks are complying, we're getting there. Our final topic is a little bit more fun, and it's this idea of a pollinator district. <laughs> Aaron, what is a what is a pollinator district? Well, according to Axios Denver, it's the new hot thing in building and developing. Love it. Yeah. This actually is coming from Westminster's Butterfly Pavilion. And cool. what they're doing is they are pushing to incorporate these like tiny neighborhoods for butterflies, bees, and other pollinating insects into new development and existing built spaces too. But really what they're trying to encourage um, developers to do is just to think about this idea before they even put a shovel in the ground. What are you going to do for the butterflies and the bees, basically? Sure, because I think historically development uh, doesn't honor whatever the natural 
whatever the natural ecosystem is in existence on a plot of land is not necessarily thought of by developers. That's right. right. I mean, think about I mean, they're putting in houses and buildings and sidewalks and other infrastructure, not, you know, thinking necessarily about who is using the green space. But it's really important because, you know, without pollinators, we don't eat, basically. Right. And development, putting in concrete and asphalt and all of that, it cuts pollinator habitat. So I love this idea of thinking about it before even starting to build. Um, They're hoping that developers will start to integrate things like um, drought-resistant, very flower-forward landscaping into design. So think rooftop gardens, um, medians with flowers, green spaces. Yeah, and I mean, I think anybody who spends any time near large plots of asphalt, which is most of us, parking lots. I mean, I literally live next door to a parking lot and... If it was like lined with trees, it would be so much more awesome. Yeah. So it's just one another one of those efforts to do things like increase the tree canopy, increase green spaces in, in places where we have these heat islands. Yeah. Um, I, I I love this. I love this in theory. In practice, I see it being a little bit more difficult, but um, I, I don't see why we can't change our minds around how we look at developing spaces for humans. So before we go, I want to do a little follow up to a moment of joy we had recently. This is another <laughs> moment of joy. Um, so we, we had mentioned that the Denver Zoo welcomed a new baby sloth recently. Yes. Uh, the two-toed sloth. And the Denver Zoo now wants our help naming this baby sloth. And you can vote for one of three names, which we're going to talk about, for a $5 donation to the zoo. So we'll put a link in the show notes if you want to vote. Uh, it's five bucks, but there's three choices um, for the name. One is rain because the sloth uh, is found in, in its natural habitat is rainforest across South America. Uh, the second choice is Wicked, which is a Star Wars reference. Yes. And he has a brother named Wookie already. So that fits. Yes. And then the final choice is Cappuccino, which is a reference to the color of the sloth's coat. Uh, Aaron, <laughs> I, I don't want to out you, but I feel like Wicket would be your choice. It would be my choice. I don't <laughs> because I'm a Star Wars. Tell fan. me, <laughs> yes. Tell me as a non-Star Wars person, who or what is Wicket? Okay. Well, I don't know if you've ever seen Return of the Jedi, but they they go to the forest moon of Endor, which is populated with the most adorable creatures called Ewoks. Okay. I'm familiar with Ewoks from popular culture because, again, as a child of the 80s, that was a big stuffed animal option was an Ewok with glowing eyes. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I feel like George Lucas designed the Ewoks with merchandising in mind because they're that cute. It was genius. Mm-hmm. It was genius. Exactly. So, yes, I mean, my, my vote would be for Wicked. I think Ewoks and sloths look really similar. I don't know. It bothers me that he has a brother named Wookiee because a Wookiee is, that's Chewbacca's species. So technically, if we're going to follow that naming pattern, then this sloth should be named Ewok. But you know what? I'm not going to quibble. Um, <laughs> Wicked is absolutely everyone's favorite Ewok. I'm sorry. So why not? So your, your quibble is the, Wicked is the name of the Ewok and then Wookiee is the species that Chewbacca is. <laughs> Uh, that's fair. Okay. I would get down to brass tacks if this was my realm. So, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Well, y- 
listeners, if you're a if you're a Star Wars fan like Aaron, Wicked is an option. You also have Rain and Cappuccino. Uh, again, we'll drop a link in the show notes if you want to vote. Also, reach out and tell us what your thoughts are. I think it's really cute that we get these opportunities to name these animals, and then you can go and see them at the Denver Zoo. Yeah. It's it's so I love cool. it, and I love the idea of making a small donation to the zoo for that privilege. Yeah. Well, Erin, thank you so much for going through the news with me. I feel better prepared to wander into the rest of this week. (laughs) Me too. Thank you, (laughs) Brie. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell Charlotte the Mama Sloth about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Denver, by texting Denver to 66866. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye-bye. I'm breaking down all the local stories that matter with my producer, Aaron O'Toole. Sorry. I'm going to start from the top. I almost called you Aaron Caroli, and then I'm like, that's not even written there. That is not even written there. Okay. Okay. Hold on. Whew.